During the month of October, Science Moab is producing a new show each week featuring scientists that have been recipients of the Canyonlands Natural History Association Discovery Pool Grants for 2023. Canyonlands Natural History Association is a nonprofit organization which exists solely to assist the National Park Service, the U.S. Forest Service, and the Bureau of Land Management in their education and visitor efforts. The Discovery Pool Research Grant Program was established by CNHA to encourage and provide funding for research partnerships between qualified scientists and CNHA's federal agency partners in southeastern Utah. Since its inception in 2007, CNHA's Discovery Pool has awarded $800,000 in grants. The research for today's episode was partially funded by the Discovery Pool. This is Science Moab a show exploring the science happening in Southeast Utah and the Colorado Plateau. I'm Peggy Hodgkins, and today we are talking about the erosive power of the Colorado River and how it continues to carve and sculpt the Colorado Plateau. It's a good show. Stay tuned. The gravel deposits are deposited and preserved from certain eras. When the river was pausing in its incision and maybe widening its canyon and leaving behind its bed deposits. And then as the river, you know, unsteadily goes through incision, when when it's incising, it's not leaving behind anything, right? It's just cutting and eroding. And then the river will pause and cut back and forth and widen the canyon bottom and leave behind deposits for us to look at. So because the river's incision is, unsteady, there are these natural gaps where we don't have any information. And then the river pauses and leaves us something to look at. Today, we are talking with Joel Pedersen, professor and department head of geomorphology at Utah State University. Joel's passion is landscapes and understanding how they came to be. Yeah, I do think the plateau landscape is so special and so iconic. It is really intuitive, I think, for folks to realize and think that the erosion and sculpting of this landscape and the cutting of deep canyons with steep canyon walls is a relatively geologically young phenomenon. You know, in sort of classic geology speak, it's a youthful landscape. I think one thing that we've been able to do in the last uh, 10 or 20 years, as we've got better and better abilities of being able to date geologic materials and put numbers on things is we're able to confirm that in fact the Canyonlands district is eroding fast and we can put a number on it and sort of back up that sort of intuitive conclusion that you get from looking at this eroding landscape. One thing that's interesting is uh, you're right ultimately if you take a step back as a earth scientist we know that the erosion and incision of a landscape to some degree is ultimately driven by the uplift of that landscape sort of tectonically. And that gives the landscape the sort of potential for erosion by having it be perched at high elevations. One sort of interesting twist that I think we've learned recently, partly through my work and through many, many others, is that in the case of the Canyonlands District of Utah, there probably is a little bit of a disconnect in timing such that the uplift of the landscape probably mostly occurred in a previous geological era and that the incision that's been occurring really recently 
sculpting our landscape is sort of a delayed response to that. The caudal plateau in general is an area that mostly uplifted in the geologic past and then kind of sat around for a little bit of geologic time waiting for the Colorado River to sort of come along and form its pathway across the plateau. And then once the river appeared later in the Cenozoic era, then all of a sudden incision could finally happen and all of that potential for erosion sort of got realized a little bit later in geologic time. In studying the incision rates of the Colorado, from the Grand Canyon area, up through Glen and Cataract Canyons, and upstream of Moab to the Dewey Bridge area, Joel and his team hypothesized that the fastest rates of incision is now occurring right around the Moab area and upstream to the mouth of the Dolores River. The erosion of the central plateau and the area around Moab and just upstream is really rapid and broad. And then sort of um, imposed on that at a finer scale are these cool salt valleys that are sort of following the lead of the river and enhancing, locally enhancing the erosion and, you know, extending arms of erosion away from the river along these exposures of the paradox salt formations. Ultimately, the Colorado River, you know, is cutting canyons and incision is working its way upstream. And then it encounters the incision counters at a place like Moab, where there's also areas where the land can be dropping. But it's really the, the Colorado River is really the cause. It's the driver. And the subsidence of Spanish and Moab Valley is really kind of responding and following the lead of the Colorado River as it's cutting down. The connection is that it is all water, right? The, these valleys are dropping because of this dissolution. And that groundwater table is connected to the Colorado River, right? So as the Colorado River goes down and cuts through its landscape, it's dropping the groundwater table. And so the water then, you know, gets a, a steeper groundwater gradient and does more dissolution and it keeps up with the river as it's dropping. Neat. But I, and another way to say it is that, yeah, even if, even if this unusual salt bedrock was not exposed in the Moab area, I think we would still be able to see that bigger pattern of how the center of the caudal plateau is eroding faster than the edges are. And it, is that just because it has worked its way up from say the Southern part where the Grand Canyon is to the central part? The, the, the headward, headward erosion? Yeah, headward erosion. Um, <laughs> is it just yeah. because now, like in, in our present time, it's reached a point where we're living in the most rapidly eroding area? I think what you stated is exactly right. And I think there's a second effect, which um, also has made that sort of bullseye of erosion. I think we can show that the reason why erosion is so fast in southeastern Utah is because that's sort of where the wave is now hitting as it as you know erosion progresses upstream. Mm -hmm. And then secondly, if you look at that pattern, there's also an effect that I think is measurable of the rocks in southeastern Utah in the Canyonlands district being um, less resistant and weaker sedimentary rocks than the rocks tend to be at the edges of the Colorado Plateau. 
So I, I think the intuitive example is uh, if you travel downstream to Grand Canyon, Grand Canyon also has these layers of sedimentary rock, but a lot of them are really resistant limestones making the cliffs. For sure. And then there's the, you know, the basement rocks down yeah. at the very bottom of Grand Canyon. And then as the river has, you know, as the wave of incision has gone upstream towards Moab, it's hit all of these soft sandstones and all these shales of the Mesozoic era in southeastern Utah. And those are just simply easier to erode. And so, yeah, I think you're getting a wave of incision that's also hitting rocks that are really easy to erode. And therefore, you you sort of get this amplified bullseye of incision. That's very um, cool. You've been looking at the situation of incision rates of the Colorado Plateau for a while. With your latest research, which includes a lot of outcrop work just north of Moab around Dewey Bridge, what sort of new data and or rocks have you come across to kind of further this, this research? One of the many evolutions in our capabilities as geoscientists over the last couple of decades is in ways of geochronology, of doing uh, the dating of geologic materials. Most of the research that my students and I do is really based on looking at old river deposits that are stuck in the landscape and record where the river used to be in the landscape in the past. And we've you know, been employing this dating technique called luminescence dating to figure out, okay, here's, here's a river gravel and it's 100 meters above where the river is today, you know, stuck on the edge of a canyon. And if we can figure out when was the river up there, then we can get an incision rate over time. And one thing that's happened in the last five or 10 years is that with technological advances, we can date with luminescence older and older deposits. 10 years ago, the main technique that we use here, and we have this luminescence lab run by a colleague here at USU, that technique in the past, we were really limited to about the last 150,000 years of geologic history where we could use that technique and figure out the history of the river. In the last five years, we've started using feldspar instead of quartz. Wow. So uh, it turns out feldspar as a mineral ends up accumulating damage and holding it in a useful way over longer time periods. Very cool. And then also, you know, there are just more and more laboratory techniques where we're able to focus in on certain types of these molecular traps that are stable and that are longer lived. Gotcha. Um, so we, we're using specifically feldspar more often and then using techniques where we're finding the best molecular traps where these electrons are staying longer. That allows us to get back farther into geologic time. And now things have progressed and we are able to start doing work where we can look back three or five or 700,000 years. And we start to get kind of a longer period of recent geologic history. And that has really changed things. A lot of it's not published, but I've got a current graduate student, Natalie Tansky, who is almost done with her PhD and her work is, is able to get back further and tell a story over the last 500,000 years in the Moab area. And that really gives us a better picture of how dynamic the erosion has been and sort of when it happens and at what rates. If you're dating cobbles or river gravels, which are above ground sitting, you know, like you said, on, on terraces above the river, they behave in the same way as something that's buried? It doesn't, it doesn't matter that they're above ground? Uh, oh, no, no, yeah, it does. One thing, for this dating technique, 
uh, luminescent stating, we really must have material that is buried. And we always choose, almost always choose to collect sand grains. You know, so little sand sized particles are really the bread and butter of this. So we are able to take a whole bunch of grains together and see how, as they were buried, how they were dosed and how brightly they luminesce in the lab. There are other techniques of dating that we sometimes employ for older deposits where we might focus in on bigger class of gravels and things. So it is true, as, as you're hiking around the landscape, and a lot of your listeners will probably be familiar with seeing Colorado River gravels here and there. One of the great challenges in the work that we do in my lab is uh, we see these Colorado River deposits everywhere, but we have to find the sand that's hidden yeah. in between the class of the cobbles. A lot of times we actually need to go to gravel pits where humans have you know sort of cut into these things and exposed them so that we can get the sand that's in between the cobbles. In fact, it's much better if you can go to a reach of the river or a particular canyon and have many different dates from different terraces at different heights all the way down to the modern river. And it's even better if you can say, oh, the river was here at 300,000 years ago, and then it got here at 200 and here at 200 and, you know, or 150,000 years. Then you start to piece together kind of a whole incision history. And I think one of the cool things we've learned is that in the incision history of the river is really unsteady the rate through time is not constant. The river very clearly has been going through pulses of incision and then kind of pausing and slowing down for a while. And then it'll go through another pulse of incision. So that, that's, a, that's sort of an intriguing pattern. And one of the things we try to do is we try to really study a reach fully so we get its full incremental history rather than just having, you know, like one point in time there to the modern river. In these pulses of higher river cutting, are you able to correlate them with any type of tectonic and or climatic events? Yeah, no, that's th those are the two big ones, right? I okay. think if people see this pattern of like, well, why is why is incision turning on and then off? You wonder like, well, yeah, is it, is it because climate is changing on and off in some way or is uh, uplift somehow, you know, uplifting for a while and then stopping and then uplifting. And I think elsewhere in the world, people have been able to show that, yes, tectonic changes and climate changes can be one thing that drives, you know, these changes in erosion rates over recent geologic time. In the Colorado Plateau, there is not a connection to any known tectonic change or event. There's no, you know, like fault moving downstream or anything that has the same drum beat as this river incision does. The, the most recent research that uh, Natalie Tansky, uh, this PhD student is doing, has shown that uh, also those changes are really, they're independent of the main climate changes that Earth has gone through in recent geologic time as Earth has gone in and out of ice ages. Right. That, that those oscillations in climate do not match these wow. kind of pauses and pulses and incision. And, and actually, that's, it's really a cool mystery, and I should just leave it that way. I think one of the great questions about the landscape evolution of canyonlands is if erosion is so dynamic and unsteady, and it's not because of tectonics and it's not because of climate, then what is it caused by? 
Yeah, there, there, there's a couple of ideas, but there, but there, we really do not know the answer to that. So, you know, what what are some of the processes you and your team go through when you're trying to study all these river deposits over over such a large such a large area? As we have gone from studying Grand Canyon area and working upstream into Meander Canyon and then upstream of Moab. In each one of these places, one of the first things that my students do is uh, is they just plain old map and document all of the river deposits that are found in that canyon landscape. To some degree, geologists have you know made maps, of course, of this region, and they've noticed, yep, there's some river gravels here and there. Uh, but then you know we get to come back in and really document it at a, a way better level, and then we you know, survey with GPS the locations of all of these things and their exact heights and positions in the landscape. It is sort of a cool mission of discovery because we get to go in and just sort of document and explore at a different level these river deposits that are our focus. And for me, that's part of the fun, just to kind of get to see and document where these all are exactly. And then if we're lucky enough, we find places where we can sample the sand and come up with the with the story of incision. Neat. And if if you look, if you took the map or you're you're mapping all these different terraces and river gravels, how infrequent are they? In other words, can you correlate them across the river or across a large area? And if you can, are you, can you only correlate them by age? If you're in a, a big open area, a broad canyon, like, for example, Professor Valley, there, there are these Colorado River deposits. And when, when you go, you know, stand on one of them and look around, you'll see, you know, another one downstream and then another one downstream. And they're all kind of at the same level as the one you're standing on. So in, in a single reach, which might be some miles long, you can just sort of visually and based on their position in the landscape, you can just correlate them and say, oh, you know, the river was here at this time. And I can see that there's another deposit from that time right over here and another one there. But then after a few miles, the river inevitably goes around a bend or <laughs> the canyon, you know, changes and there aren't any of these river terraces anymore. And then you kind of lose it. And then when it, when it opens up again, you kind of have to start over and say, well, let's see, you know, upstream 20 miles, yeah. this would have been a 40,000-year-old terrace. And we don't really know for sure whether that's still the case until we get a numeric date on it. Okay. So it is a combination where, to some degree, we can map and record these in the field and connect them visually for some distance. But then as we work on longer, longer distances, there are gaps in between the records and we we really do rely on the geochronology at the broader scale. So what are some next steps, you know, in your planning? What else are you trying to figure out here? One thing that I must make clear and admit is that it's a working hypothesis. And there's, <laughs> a, there's still going to be a multi-year process of really testing that hypothesis. With the dating. So, yeah. yeah, with the dating. And we really want to figure out the rates, like at what rate is this wave of incision moving upstream? If this wave of incision is moving upstream, that also means that there's some point upstream where that wave has not yet reached. To get that full picture from upstream to downstream, we're still incrementally collecting all of these data. And we're only partway there to sort of 
being able to test across the whole landscape this pattern we expect. This most recent work that, that thankfully is, uh, we're getting help from the Canyonlands Natural History Association for is really enabling us to go farther upstream mm -hmm. and trying to get that full picture and testing this hypothesis for sure and really putting the rates and dates on it. As you go from Moab upstream, if there is this wave of incision, one pattern we should see is that um, over recent geologic time, the incision rate should get faster and faster and faster the closer you get to the front of that wave. And then if you go upstream even farther, the rates should suddenly get really slow yeah. um, because the wave hasn't gotten there yet. And that's a really good hypothesis, and it is just not tested yet. Our next step is that we are going upstream of Moab. We're trying to get this deeper history. And then we're trying to see whether the rates actually do get faster and then slower as you go even farther upstream. We have one main key study reach, which is up near Dewey Bridge. Okay. And sort of between Dewey Bridge, near the mouth of the Dolores, up towards Westwater Canyon. We've mapped out the deposits. Most of them, we have gotten samples for luminescence dating. And we're working on them in the lab right now. Unfortunately, it takes a couple of years yeah. um, for them to be worked on in the lab so that we can get these dates on them. And maybe in five years, <laughs> we'll have that all figured out and be able to really say, yes, this is what's happened at what time and the wave is moving this fast and it's been doing it for this long and it's unsteady for these reasons. But Joel, I really appreciate you talking. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you, Peggy. It was nice to talk to you. To learn more or listen to other Science Moab episodes, visit sciencemoab.org or anywhere you get your podcasts. Our theme music is by Jeremy Spaulding, and the show is produced by Peggy Hodgkins, Christina Young, and KZMU. If you love Science Moab, let us know. Leave a rating on Spotify or a review on iTunes, and consider supporting Science Moab by donating to the podcast at sciencemoab.org. This programming is unique to Moab, Utah, and your support makes it possible.